0: And I'm going to read verses 15 through 21 of Genesis chapter 50. So hear now this reading of God's word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And that is God's word. You may be seated. We're in a series called Faith Stories. And we've been looking each week at Hebrews chapter 11. And what we've been saying is that God never calls you to do something that you can do on your own without faith. To follow God is to be on a journey of faith, to live by faith. And so each week for the past number of weeks, we've been asking the question, what is faith and what does it mean to live by faith? Now in Hebrews 11, Joseph is mentioned, but I've decided for today's sermon to actually look at part of his story in Genesis to learn something about his example of faith. Because when we say God never calls you to do something that you could do on your own without faith, that's certainly true in Joseph's life. As we're about to see today, Joseph does something that's very hard, and he's able to do it because of what he believes about God, because of faith. And so let's take a look at these verses, and I want to show you three things today. First, Joseph's courageous obedience. And second, he is able to be courageously obedient because of a glorious doctrine. And then the final thing I want to show you is an assurance how we can know this is true in our lives. So courageous obedience, a glorious doctrine, and settled assurance. Let's take a look. First, courageous obedience. Many of you know one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in one sermon that he preached, he said to the congregation, the hardest thing that Jesus ever asked his followers to do was to love their enemies. And to forgive people who hurt them. And Dr. King would know. The hardest thing Jesus ever asked is for us to love our enemies and to forgive when we've been hurt. What we see here in this story is Joseph doing that hard thing. And it's a courageous thing because your natural instinct when you're hurt is to want to get even, to get revenge, to settle the score. And oftentimes, the practice of forgiveness is itself an act of obedience because you grant forgiveness before you feel it. We're called to forgive even if inside we don't really want to. And so what Joseph is showing us is courageous obedience in forgiving. But in order to feel the weight of that, let me just briefly summarize the story of Joseph. Because here, chapter 50, what we just read is the very end of a very dramatic narrative. I'll do it briefly. But it starts all the way back in chapter 37 of Genesis. Joseph was one of the younger sons of his father, Jacob. And Jacob loved Joseph, probably played a little bit of favoritism. That created problems in the family. And so Jacob loves his son, Joseph. And the brothers of Joseph are jealous. They envy the special love that their father shows to this son. So one day, Joseph's brothers are out in the fields, tending the flock. And Jacob says to Joseph, go check on your brothers, see how they're doing. And the brothers, when they see Joseph coming, they just don't like him. And their hearts have been seeding in envy and jealousy. So on that day, when Joseph's coming out to them, they say, let's kill him. And one of the brothers says, yeah, I don't like him either. But killing him, that's a little much. And so they decide to sell him into slavery as there's a caravan from Egypt passing by. And so from that day, Joseph's life is plunged into deep suffering. He's sold and betrayed by his own brothers into slavery. And then he's brought as a slave into the home of a person called Potiphar, and he's there doing his best, and he's falsely accused of a crime, and he's taken from his slavery, and he's thrown into prison. And while in prison, again, doing his best, trying to be faithful, and he helps somebody and that person forgets about him, ignores him, doesn't remember him when he has a chance to do him good. And what you have in the story of Joseph from the moment his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery is 20 years of suffering. And every day to month to year, things just get a little bit worse and a little bit harder. 20 years of suffering. 20 years of thinking, maybe it's going to change, and it actually just gets harder. But then, at the end of those 20 years, something does change. And I won't give you the whole story, but Joseph impresses Pharaoh, who was the king, the leader of Egypt. And Pharaoh takes Joseph from the prison, and in a dramatic turn of events, makes him effectively prime minister. And Joseph goes from prison to the palace, and he's leading in Egypt. Fast forward a few more years, and there's a grand famine that spread over all the land. And Joseph's brothers have now traveled from the place they live to Egypt, and they have come to buy food because they're starving. Their family has nothing to eat. There's a famine covering the world. And when they stand before Joseph, they don't recognize him. (laughs) Joseph is powerful. he's the prime minister, he's in the palace, and these brothers thought he was dead, or a slave somewhere. And so they don't recognize him in a quite interesting and sometimes funny turn of events. Joseph in chapter 45, reveals himself to his brothers, and they're terrified. This man in power, this man who's prime minister, who has power over us that we tried to kill, and they're terrified. But in chapter 45, Joseph forgives them. He's kind to them. He shows them grace. And now we come to chapter 50. And Jacob has died. The dad has died. And so the brothers, again, look at verse 15. They say, now we're doomed. Maybe Joseph was just being nice to us while dad was still alive. But now that dad's gone, he's going to pay us back. And that's what revenge is, by the way. The opposite of forgiveness is revenge. And to revenge is to pay someone back for the wrong that they've incurred upon you. And they think that's it. We're doomed. And what's stunning is that time and time again, no matter how deeply Joseph was hurt, he keeps showing them grace. He keeps forgiving. And that's the act of courageous obedience. Joseph forgives his brothers who ruined his life and did a terrible, terrible thing. And so I want to talk with you for just a minute about forgiveness. Here's the first thing to say. And I'm telling you now, I'm going to say this a couple more times throughout the sermon because it's really important you don't miss this. Forgiveness in the Bible never means minimizing or ignoring injustice. Forgiveness never means you pretend bad stuff doesn't happen or that people should not be held accountable for the things that they've done. The passage tells us we see them confessing their sin, repenting. There's power dynamics at play. Their sin, their evil was to be accounted for. And so forgiveness never means you pretend the bad stuff doesn't happen. It never means minimizing or ignoring injustice. But be that as it may, the followers of God are called to forgive. They're called to be people who practice forgiveness as those who have received forgiveness. And so we can ask the question, well, what does it mean to forgive? Like practically, what does that look like? And here's the way to think about it. When somebody hurts you, they create a moral or an ethical debt. A debt has been created in the relationship. And when a debt exists, somebody has to pay for it. So if you invite me over to your flat and I'm just so excited to be there, I'm just dancing, I'm just so happy to come over, and in my joy, I break a lamp, I knock a lamp off your table. All of a sudden, I've created a debt. You bought that lamp, or maybe it was a family heirloom, God forbid. You have this lamp that I've now broken. A debt exists. And at that point, only a couple of things can happen. Either I can say to you, I'm so sorry. Can you please tell me how much that lamp cost, And then I can go and buy you a new lamp or I can give you the money to buy a lamp yourself. A debt exists and I pay it. But if you say to me, oh, Bijan, don't worry about it. We're just glad you're here. We forgive you. It's all good. What you mean is either you're going to go and buy a new lamp or you're going to live with less light in your apartment. your flat. But somebody has to pay. And forgiveness is always saying to a person who has wronged you, I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. But I'm going to bear the cost myself. I'm going to bear the debt that you incurred. Now, it's easy to understand that when it comes to breaking a lamp. But what about in relationships? Well, I can't be exhaustive here in talking about what forgiveness looks like in the day-to-day relationships and the hurt that we have. But here are a few examples. When someone hurts you, it means refusing to slander about them, to cut them down to other people. It means, for example, refusing to outwardly pretend like everything's okay. Oh, yeah, we're great. But inwardly, you're just hoping and rooting to hear bad news about that person. Just playing over and over in your mind the terrible things that you'd like to see come upon them. Forgiveness means refusing. It means just not using what they've done against you as leverage. Always holding it over them. Always acting like if they just cross the line again, well then, the relationship's broken. You see, forgiveness is about you absorbing the debt. Now again, and I told you I'd say this a lot, this doesn't mean we ignore injustice, doesn't mean we minimize evil. Furthermore, there are a lot of examples in the Bible of people showing forgiveness, but not restoring a relationship. Sometimes the evil that people do is such that you can't trust them again. But it's still possible to forgive. It's still possible to practice forgiveness. And Joseph is showing us here, even after everything he went through, the courageous obedience of forgiving someone who's hurt him. And so if you want to talk more about this, if you have questions about forgiveness, we as a pastoral team would love to walk with you and process what could forgiveness look like? in the nuanced and complicated situations of your life. But what Joseph does, the example of his faith, is he forgives. But here's the second question that I want us to consider today. If that's what he did, the question for all of us is, how did he do it? What made Joseph being able to forgive his brothers who ruined his life possible? Or another way to say it is, when you're hurt, how can you forgive When you go through any kind of suffering, how can you trust God and live with faith? The answer is a glorious doctrine. You see, Joseph is just living out his theology. In this story, Joseph forgives because of something he believes about God. And that's what I want to now spend some time showing you a glorious doctrine. Come with me to verse 20. The brothers are scared, they think this is it, we're doomed. And Joseph says, don't be afraid. And look with me if you would, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you hear what Joseph is saying? Joseph's brothers, when they sold him into slavery, were trying to do him harm. They mostly wanted him dead. One of them said, no, slavery is better. They were evil, and they did a bad thing. And Joseph, as he looks back on that event, as he considers that part of his story, he says, yeah, you guys did mean harm. But God was working. God was in it. And even what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And if you think, well, this is just a one-off. Joseph was just having a nice day and he was being charitable. No. Because in chapter 45, when the brothers first revealed themselves to Joseph. And Joseph finally reveals himself to them and says, it's me, guys. They're terrified and they think we're all about to die. And you know what Joseph says to them? I'm going to read to you a couple of verses from chapter 45. Listen carefully to what Joseph says. They're terrified. They think we're dead. He's going to be so angry at us. And Joseph says this. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. So God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant here on earth. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times. To be crystal clear. Joseph is saying to these brothers, you guys didn't do this. You say, no, they did. Like we we read the story, like Joseph, they did it. And this is the tension. This is the tension of faith. Joseph knows what his brothers did. But his faith and his belief in God enables him to look at the events of his life and to see the activity of God in and underneath all of it. It was God who sent me here, Joseph said. And it was that faith, it was that belief that enabled Joseph to reinterpret and to reimagine the entire narrative of his life. Now, theologically, the big word to describe what Joseph is talking about is providence. The doctrine that Joseph believes in which appears on almost every page of the Bible, is the doctrine of providence, which we can define simply as God's hidden hand is at work in the ordinary affairs of our life. There's never a moment. There's never a scene. There's never a situation that unfolds in your life or mine or in this world that God's hand is not in. Many of you know this great verse in the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That verse, which many people know and love, that verse could be a banner over Joseph's life. People intended evil, but God was working for good. But hear me. Romans 8.28 doesn't say that all things that happen are good, because lots of things that happen are not only not good, they're awful. And the passage doesn't say all things that happen are good. It says that God, in his providence, is able to take even really awful things and work them together for good to accomplish his purposes. So Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, guys, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. You thought you were selling me into slavery, but God sent me here. Joseph believes in providence and that belief, that doctrine enables him to reinterpret his entire life. So let me give you two implications. What does it mean to believe in providence? What does it mean to stake your whole life on it? Two implications. First, this says something about how we view God. Some of you, as I'm preaching this sermon, are a little uncomfortable. And I know that because I've talked to a lot of you about these things. And the reason you're uncomfortable is because you don't like the idea of a God who sends people like Joseph into slavery. Or who allows things to happen that you can't make sense of. You just don't like a God who feels like he's involved in the bad stuff. But here's what I want you to see. If we want God to end evil. If we want there to be a world where evil is dealt with. Where suffering is defeated. Where as Toyin prayed earlier today, all tears are wiped away then can I tell you, you need the God of Joseph. Because do you know what the God of Joseph does? He doesn't just stop evil in its tracks, but he takes evil and he so thwarts its destructive purposes that what was meant for evil actually accomplishes good. And friends, that's the ultimate end of evil. It's not just stopping it by making everything that was intended for evil producing good. We need the God of Joseph if we want a world healed, if we want all tears wiped away. I can't tell you why there's evil in the world, why there's suffering at a micro level in your own life and at a macro level like we're seeing right now. But I can tell you if the God of Joseph is real, he can work it together for good. And that's the ultimate defeat of evil. That's the ultimate end of injustice. So this doctrine does say something about how we view God, but it also says something about how we can view our own lives. To be personal for a moment, some of you have been and are right now in seasons of profound suffering. And suffering is always hard, but when suffering is chronic, it's much harder. When suffering is ongoing, like it was in Joseph's story, people stop caring and asking. They just move on with their life. And so if you're in a season of suffering, and a season especially of chronic suffering, it's easy to look at your own story and to feel like God either isn't there or he doesn't care. Because if he was there and did care, then why would this be happening to me? But if the God of Joseph is real, and if what Joseph believed was actually true, then you have a whole new way to reinterpret your story. It doesn't mean that your life is not gonna sometimes be really hard, but it means that at the bottom, you have an unshakable conviction that even the bad stuff, God's gonna work together for good. Let me read to you a quote. It's a little long, but it's worth it from someone writing about the Genesis story, Joseph's story, and summarizing some of these things. Listen to this great great insight. It says this, God's sovereign grace has guided Israel's history. So Joseph theologizes on the spiritual implications of that doctrine in a unique way. And this truth enables him to reinterpret his narrative. From a worm's-eye view, Joseph's story reads like a nightmare a cacophony of outrageous excesses that are unjustly inflicted upon him. And a rational conclusion from that perspective would be everything is absurd and it could have turned him into a cynic or a nihilist. But he chooses the heavenly perspective, the perspective of faith, that God is working through him to bring about what is good. And this enables him to forgive. The believer can always count on God to bring to pass his good pleasure, regardless of what people intend. There's going to be a lot of seasons and moments in your life where the suffering seems senseless. And it's going to be really hard for you to obey God. Whether it's trusting him, whether it's practicing forgiveness There's going to be a lot of moments in your life. And for many of you, the hardest moments of your life are still to come. And there's going to be a lot of moments where you look and you say, this, my story, is a cacophony of outrageous excesses. And in that moment, you have two choices. You can say, this is it. I got to make the best of it. Or you can say, the God of Joseph is still working. And he can do it for good. I may not see it as clearly as Joseph did at the end of my story. I may not always know how or why. But what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Let me give you one example of this from a a person in history. Our church meets on Cooper Street. Some of you know the name William Cooper. He was an 18th century poet, Christian, and he wrote lots of songs that we still sing today. He also suffered with what we would today diagnose as clinical depression. And he spent most of his adult life in hospitals and care facilities. And in one of those facilities, at one season of intense difficulty and suffering, chronic suffering, he wrote a song. And that song has been encouraging people, Christians, many of you, And has been doing so for hundreds of years. That song is titled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And a couple of lines of it go like this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And let's emblazon that into our hearts and our minds. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's what Joseph knew. That's what Joseph believed. And so in his moment of seeing his brothers, he was able to forgive them. Because he knew that God was working. He knew that God was in it. And he chose to lean on a God whose providence was underneath the frown. But the question is, and some of you might be saying, well, good for Joseph, but how do I know? I mean, how can I know? How can I be sure that God is working things together for good? And more than that, how do I get the power to forgive? I mean, Joseph did, but I can't. You don't know my story. We've been talking in the sermon kind of about two things, right? Forgiveness and then providence. But friends, do you see, the way to become a person who forgives and the way to become a person who rests in providence is actually one and the same thing. We need the story to which Joseph's story is only a pointer. Because think about it, who was sent by that father to check on the well-being of his people. But the people that he came to check on, instead of loving and receiving him, rejected him. And betrayed him. And that betrayed son of the father. Said to his people. Remember me. But instead of always remembering him. They forget him. You see Joseph's story. Points us to another story. Jesus Christ. And the gospel. And Joseph. had a hard life. But the gospel tells us that Jesus, at the end of his life, literally gave or lost his life to die for the very people that betrayed him and forsook him and abandoned him. Joseph's story points us to that story. And when you look at Jesus, when you look at the cross, Jesus dying for sin, what you see is the key that unlocks this whole tension and mystery. Because on the one hand, the cross tells us you incurred a debt. You were sinful. That is to say, you owed God a debt you could never pay. You violated his gracious and loving character. You broke his gracious, kind heart. And someone has to pay. And on the cross, Jesus pays. He literally absorbs your debt. That's why we sing sometimes, our sin is upon his shoulders. He took your burden from you and bore it himself. So when the Bible says, forgive others, it says, as Christ has forgiven you. The cross is how we become a forgiving people because we see how much we've been forgiven. But not just that the cross is also the ultimate proof that we need to rest in providence. Because (laughs) what happened to Joseph was terrible, but what happened to Jesus was the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. Because if Jesus really is God, then what happened in that moment is creation rebelled and crucified the creator who came in human form. And there's nothing worse than that. And when you look at the cross, it would be easy to see, well, that was the enemies of Jesus who did that. But you know what the New Testament, the Bible tells us? It was God's plan. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Acts 2. It says this, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. And you say, Peter, wait, that's confusing. Was it wicked people or was it God's plan that led to the cross? And the answer is yes. Because God's providence was at work. And so the cross becomes the ultimate example, the ultimate proof, if you needed it, that what people intended for evil, God is using for good. Because the worst thing that ever happened in history is the best thing. The redemption of the world in Jesus Christ. So what does the cross tell us? God's working things together for good, and you can forgive as you've been forgiven. Joseph's story points us to Jesus' story. And so here's where I want to close today. If you see that, if you see Jesus on the cross dying for you, And if you see that not only is that the way that you're forgiven, so you can be a forgiving person, but more than that, if you see that that means there's no evil that God can't use for good and work together for good. What happens is not a life free from pain, but a life that has peace in the midst of pain. You become a person who grieves because life often has things that are very grievesome. But you grieve as someone who still has hope. That's what it means to live by faith. It doesn't mean to be a stoic and pretend that everything's fine all the time, because it isn't. But it means that deep down, you have an unshakable peace and a hope because you know what's coming. And you see the cross and what God did. And you know what this could look like in practice? In 1871, there was a massive fire in Chicago. There was a man who lived there called Horatio Spafford, and he had a wife and four daughters. And when the fire came to Chicago, they lost everything. Their entire financial portfolio was destroyed. Now, they were originally from England, so when the fire came and destroyed everything, Spafford said to his wife, take the girls, get on a boat, go home, I'll settle things down here, and I'll meet you later. So his wife and his four daughters got on the boat and they started sailing across the Atlantic. And in the middle of the ocean, that ship, I don't know how this works or happens, but that ship collides with another ship. And it sinks and 246 people die, including Spafford's four daughters. So his wife, when she finally is able, sends him a cable, a telegram, and says two words, saved alone. And he knows his girls are gone. So he gets on the next boat that he can to go meet his wife in England. And while he's sailing across the Atlantic, he gets to the spot where his daughter is drowned. And he starts writing a song. And you know the song. Part of the song goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Apart from the cross, that's just wishful thinking. But if Jesus died on a cross, and if he rose from the dead, then that's truer than anything else. That it can be well with your soul no matter what you face. That's what we're invited to believe. That's what we're invited to see by faith. So let's pray now and ask God to help that be true for us. Our God, thank you for the story of Joseph, his example. But more than that, thank you that Joseph's story is just a pointer to the ultimate true story, to the true and better Joseph the one who died for us, who died to forgive us of our sin and whose death shows us that whatever people mean for evil, you are working together for good. So today, Lord, we need this. We need this to be much more than words spoken and information. We need to be changed by these truths. So pour out your spirit in this time of response. Help this to become real and felt, and deep in the core of our bones. We pray this together asking humbly yet boldly in Jesus' name. Amen.